If you have a Bible, go ahead and get it open uh, to Job chapter 4. And as you do, listen to all these sighs as you sit down, man. I'll tell you what, climbing those stairs, whew, uh, all the creaking I heard, I, I didn't know if that was my knees or if that was the stage. <laughs> hey, wherever you're at, if you're weary, you're among uh, friends this morning. And my hope is uh, that you'll leave here encouraged today, maybe a little bit more equipped uh, after studying the Word of God this morning to be good friends to people. Um, Job's friends, and, and let, me just, let me just maybe preface this whole thing by saying one of the great gifts my parents gave to me as a, as a little boy was giving me opportunities to be around people who were in significant amounts of suffering or pain. Uh, so my, I, I have very vivid memories of being a very little boy, and by little I mean four or five years old, uh, and going to the VA center where uh, our church once a month would go down there on Tuesday nights. My dad was a veteran and, and helped start the church we were in. I think he had a um, a desire to help and bless veterans if we could, we would go down there and we would have a bingo night. So uh, we would go down there and these were people who were from the spinal ward, so they couldn't move anything. Uh, and they would roll these guys in and I and my comrades, the little kids, we would, we would move their card for them. So my dad or whoever would get up and he'd say, A11, and I'd look in A11 and I'd move it. You know, but I'm sitting next to and surrounded by people, some of whom have lost their limbs, some who have, uh, you know, severe uh, mental disorders. They can't, they can't move anymore. And the thing that was um, pretty amazing about that to me, and I didn't really understand it at the time, was that actually what ailed them the most, probably out of everything, was they had gotten devastatingly lonely. Because when you're in that condition, it's hard for people to be around a lot of the time. And so even their own families uh, would come to see them fairly infrequently. And so the highlight for them was not the fact that they won a dollar if they won the bingo that night. That's what we would do is a dollar a card. We'd just play for a couple hours. We'd just move the cards and everything. But it was having somebody actually sit next to them for an extended period of time. Presence, just being there. I had nothing to offer them. I had no wisdom. I had a little bit of an attitude, actually, at that age. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe you can relate to that. But the gift of just being in the presence of somebody who's hurting. They've lost somebody that they care about. Their relationship fell apart. Uh, they lost their job. They're just so full of anxiety that they can't hardly get from this place to that place without breaking into tears or feeling super anxious or whatever. Just being able to be there with people, whether it's a medical issue, an emotional issue, a behavioral issue, a mental issue, or just loss. To be able to stand next to them, sit next to them, and not say dumb things. Um, it's so frequent that that happens that I have actually gotten to where I coach people that are going through grief. I will tell them, I will say, hey, now listen, uh, what you're going through is really uh, is really difficult and a lot of people love you and care about you and they're going to try to help you. And when they try to help you, they're going to say things and do things that maybe aren't going to be very helpful. But just know that they're trying to be helpful. And so if they get up there and they say things that are dumb, you know, like I've, I've been in, in hospital rooms, no joke, where somebody passes away and somebody will say, yeah, you know, I lost my dog last week. And they'll draw a comparison. They're trying to be empathetic 
but they just kind of sound dumb. It's like, okay, that wasn't a dog that just died. No offense to dogs. That was my father. That was my spouse of 50 years. What are you talking about? Okay, and what I want us to do is to take a look at Job's friends. And I want us to take a look at what it means to just sit next to somebody and how we can be helpful to them. Because the presence of a suffering person is holy ground in the sight of God. Because either God is working on that person or that person is working on their relationship to God. And so when you have a suffering person, that's hallowed sacred ground. And God has put us in a position to be able to bless someone's life. I wish Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad had just brought a bingo card to hang out with Job. But instead, they brought words, some of which were true, some of which were poorly timed or spoken. Others weren't true at all. So if you're not familiar with the story of Job, the 60-second version goes like this. Job was blameless and upright in the sight of God. Job loses everything in sudden waves of tragedy, one thing after another. He loses everything he owns, and then he loses his kids, and then he loses uh, just one thing after another. Completely wiped out, completely devastated. He loses his health, and he finds himself covered head to toe in boils, lying on an ash heap with nothing but a bitter and angry wife who's brokenhearted at the same time he is. He lies on the ash heap with his friends then, we'll call them friends for the time being, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. His friends seem to be good friends at the beginning. As far as we know, they're the only ones to visit him. Nobody else seems to be on the scene. That public hospital without doctors, the ash heap of us. And they do well at first. They don their morning clothes. They weep. They do what you're supposed to do. You're just lying there seven days. They lie there with Job, and they don't say anything. They just lie there with him. At no point during those seven days do they presume to speak, and then they only speak after Job speaks. So we studied lament last week, but in response to Job's brutal lament, Eliphaz decides that he's going to counsel Job, that he'll go first, that he will get on the help wagon first and offer to say something on Job's behalf. Now, rather than go verse by verse through basically what are 23 chapters of back and forth between Job and his friends. So if you want to read them, I encourage you to do so. I'm going to take uh, the opportunity to basically sum all that up for you, okay, by taking one typical exchange between Eliphaz and Job and just saying basically this kind of argument goes on for 23 or so chapters in Job. So what we're going to find is that Job's friends give us some important insights on what to say and what not to say to somebody who's in pain and who's hurting. Now I want to give you a quick caveat before we go into this, okay? When most of us come to the book of Job, we often identify ourselves with Job. You know, and, and, and I think there are a couple reasons that we ought to be very careful in doing that. One is Job was perfectly and utterly blameless to the point that God brags about his blamelessness. Most of us are not in that camp. I'm not. Okay, to the point that God would say, hey, have you, Satan, have you considered my servant Tim and how righteous he is in everything that he does? I wish he could say that. I don't want to be the kind of person he can say that about. But I'm not there yet. Uh, second thing is, we're always, in, in the culture we're in, we often will identify closest to whoever the victim is. And we never take a look at what we might be doing that actually victimizes people. So in this case, it's very simple for us to take a look at Job and go, oh yeah, I'm Job, and this will give me good instructions for how my friends should treat me when I'm in pain. You missed it. The point of this text ought to be, hey, how can I be a better friend to somebody else and keep from making the Jobs in my life, the Jobs that I know, the people who are broken and hurting or struggling, 
Instead of identifying yourself with Job this morning, may I suggest that you identify yourself with his friends. Take a look at how maybe you've acted that way, how you've said those things, because I've, I've done all of it, okay? I'm here to tell you. And I've learned, I hope, some things uh, through experience about what to do and what not to do. Um, but I'm going to throw that little caveat in as we get going. Now, we're going to be in Job chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 to 8. So this is Eliphaz, his friend. This is the, kind of the first time somebody speaks up. And here's what Eliphaz says. The text says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? This translation there is, Can you handle the truth, Job? All right. Yet, who can keep from speaking? <laughs> you could if you wanted to. Verse 3, Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you're dismayed. It is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I've seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. All right, so let's just stop there for now. Let me walk you through what he says. Job, can you handle the truth? Here it is. You've helped a lot of people through their pain in the past, but now that it's happening to you, you're lashing out. Why are you mad at God? Has God ever made an innocent person suffer? You're just reaping what you've sown. That's basically what he's saying, in a nutshell. Job reacts to the insensitive, we'll call them half-truths, of his friend, the way many of us would, with anger and some reproof for them as well. Uh, this goes on. So go over to Job chapter 6, and we're going to uh, flip over just a couple of pages in your Bible. Job 6, 21 to 30, listen to Job's response, and I'll translate what he's saying there too. It's actually extremely poetic and beautiful to read, um, but for some it's kind of very lofty language, and so it may need a little bit of translation, so to speak. Job 6, 21 to 30. Job goes, for you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift? Or from your wealth, offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. How forceful are upright words, but what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn, let no injustice be done. Turn now, my vindication is at stake. If there is any injustice on my tongue, cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Okay, let me translate that. Job says to his friend in response, you're saying all of this because you can't handle my pain. Who asked for your advice anyway? Your words of reproof are forceful, but what exactly are you reproving? Remind me again exactly what I did wrong, specifically. Then he basically says, you're heartless. And he does it with that little phrase, you would cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. He's saying, you just don't have much of a heart. And then he says, don't you think I can discern why this is happening all by myself? I really need you to be my fortune teller here. Okay. And this just goes on and on and on and on and on, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So if you'll allow me, maybe we can take some lessons from 
the following chapters and, and uh, talk about how we can pastor hurting people. Let me start here. It's okay to be silent. As one proceeds throughout the book of Job, one wonders if Job would have been better off with seven more days of silence. That if actually saying, hey, um, I'm just going to sit here with you while you continue to lament, if they wouldn't have been better off doing that. Uh, the mystics used to refer to the ministry of silence. Now that's a ministry that you are going to want to sign others up for at certain times in your life. Your teenagers, your spouse, hey, babe, why do you sign up for the ministry of silence this week? Let's do that one, you know. Uh, but you can sit there and then when you do, understand it's not really about just saying, okay, I'm going to try to not speak um, because I'm afraid to say anything or whatever. Now, if you are afraid to say something, yeah, in general, you are better off not saying it. But the ministry of silence can be very, very important. Let me explain to you why. Uh, a mentor of mine one, once told me in a task of ministry class, he said, don't feel the burden to say things in a hospital room, for instance. Just be there. Now, if you must say something, if they ask you a question, or if you really feel like this is a, a key moment in this person's life and God is really actually wanting me to say something because I should, somebody should say something right here, then maybe you do it. But it needs to be fairly short and it needs to be fairly um, non-accusatory and things like that. And I cannot tell you over the years how long, uh, how many times that has helped me in a grief situation. To speak when somebody actually asks me to. There's a thought. I thought I was supposed to speak because I, was, uh, I had so much brilliant things to offer somebody who was in pain. I know how much I could benefit them from my insights. So why would I be quiet and rob them of the opportunity to hear my pontification on their plight, right? I mean, that's, that, there, there's a thought that says when I come in here, I just want to make things better, so I'm going to start talking. And really what we're doing is we're making ourselves feel better. It took me a while to realize that's what I was doing because I thought I was being helpful, but in reality, the reason I started talking so much is because I couldn't handle the anxiety of being there in the presence of a broken person. That eventually you want to get off the ash heap and move towards some sort of solution instead of in doing what is called the ministry of silence. The mystics, again, believed in it. Basically, it grows a person by not talking. That's why a lot of hermits and people like that would go out in the desert and spend 30 days without talking. Well, what's the good is that going to do? Well, most people who've ever tried something like that, it absolutely destroys you because you can't hide behind words anymore. At that point, you're now in a position where you, you, uh, you don't have anything left to offer. So you just have... All this stuff just starts bubbling up in you, and that's just for the person who's being quiet. So when you're there and you're in a hospital room with somebody else and they're devastated, they're broken or whatever, sometimes the ministry of silence is exactly what's called for. Now you have a ministry and the one that you can readily assign to others in your household if you want to. But our anxiety will often cause us to say some unwise things. Uh, I, the first intern I ever had, uh, I had, I had just graduated college and heard that, that lesson uh, from my, my mentor. And he goes, he goes um, uh, I, I brought my intern with me and I go, hey, this lady's dying of cancer. Now he'd even known her for a very long time. This is up in way north California, small town. And I go, so we're gonna go see her. This might be the last time we see her. Now you need to prepare yourself when we go in there. If you haven't seen somebody dying of cancer before, okay, she's gonna weigh a lot less than the last time you saw her. You need to prepare yourself for, for, for just seeing that. And don't walk in and let your face do the talking. 
okay? You walk in, you know, uh, and try not to say a whole lot. And I said, when we go in, I gave him a couple of ways that he could start the situation, and I, uh, and I said, you take the lead. We walk in there, and she's, she's in agony. She's getting toward the end. And he walks in, and he goes, so, and I, I don't remember precisely her name. I think it was Gladys, if I'm not mistaken. He walks in, and he goes, Gladys, how are you feeling? First thing out of his mouth. I mean, she went up one side of that kid and down the other. I mean, left nothing of this guy. I mean, he was destroyed. And she'd known this kid his whole life, right? She goes, she goes how am I feeling? How do you think I'm feeling? And she just went, boom. And so we got back in the car, and I said, Dan, his name was Dan. And I go, I go, Dan, that's what I was talking about, right? Go in there and just be, you know, if you walk in and you see somebody who's devastated or whatever, resist the temptation to tell jokes, to feel like you got to fill the empty space, that you got to try to make them feel better, okay? Resist. Because we say dumb things to people who are hurting. Let me give you a few of the greatest hits of Christians I've heard or said myself at some point. You'll also find them on the lips of Eliphaz in our text for this morning and throughout the chapters in Job that I've referred to. Uh, the one that I would say is the most timely given today is this one. Here's why this happened. Okay, the, the thing, if I haven't learned another thing about being in ministry in this day and age, is to resist the temptation to explain why it happened. Okay, because a couple of things are going to happen. First of all, more details might come out on this situation. They're going to make you look stupid. Okay, and whenever you say something like, God laid this on my heart to say this. This is how God feels about that. As soon as you go, thus saith the Lord with it, when you're wrong, you know who's wrong? They think God's wrong. You make God look stupid and yourself. So if we want to make ourselves look dumb, that's fine. But when we bring God into it, okay, you got to be right. And I can't present, I mean, I, why did the, why, the church shooting in New Zealand? I'll give you an example, okay, from this past week. Tragedy, okay, why do we feel like we have to say something? Can we not shut it for just a little bit? Because you know why? And, and people who've been watching the world long enough, guess what happened this morning? Church bombs, right? So now everybody that went out on one side, now there's Christian church bombings in the Philippines this morning, right? But we felt like we had to talk. Now we look stupid and insensitive. And it undercuts our witness. Instead of just simply going, that's tragic, how can I help? Let me be a blessing. Let me see how I can help. I got to explain it. I got to, oh, this is why this happened. And here's how we make sure this never happens again. Really, we can guarantee that never happens again if we do that thing. And if it was that easy to surmise that, don't you think we would have done it by now? Or we could have a little bit of humility and simply say, okay, that is a God-awful thing. While we're in mourning, we're not going to be acting out of anxiety and pain we're going to mourn with those that are mourning right now. And we're going to let things kind of begin to play out a little bit. And then we're going to look and actually try to discern what the right thing to do might be. But when we go like this and like that and like that from one anxiety trip to another, you end up saying and doing dumb things. So that doesn't, that's just one example. I, I mean, I've, Job's friends do it to him here. Uh, preachers, theologians, columnists, scientists, everybody's got an opinion on everything. But Job and all of his friends, both sides, 
are wrong. Don't miss that. Job thinks it's happening to him for this reason. His friends think it's happening for this reason, and they're both wrong. Okay? Blameless Job and his ever-wise friends, they're both wrong about why it's happening because there are things at play that they don't have access to in the spiritual realm. So, you know, uh, Job's friends believe that sin is the only answer. And in fact, Job is disillusioned because he thinks sin is the only answer. The only reason this is happening to you, Job, is because you sinned. So if you just tell God what you did, you'll accept the blame for it, and God maybe will relent. And Job's like, I haven't done anything. I don't understand why God's doing it. And eventually Job's conclusion is going to be, God is a cosmic meanie. That's the explanation. Okay, well, he's wrong too. And the reason they're wrong is because they don't have access to, to what is going on in the universe, and that's God's point. Job, remind me again, toward the end of the book, God's going to show up and speak to him out of the whirlwind, and he's going to say, Job, where were you? Who tells the calf when to give birth? Who tells the sun when to go up in the sky and go down? Why don't you just stand there? Let me ask you some questions. And for two or three chapters, that's all God does, question after question after question, and Job can't answer any of them. Oh, yes, we can. We got solutions. No, 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 no. Not always. Not always. As Evelyn Underhill said, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. Second dumb thing, God laid it on my heart. Now, that it's not altogether foolishness. I'm not saying I don't believe God lays things on people's hearts. The Holy Spirit does lead people to say certain things. However, kind of the, the mistake of Eliphaz here is that he thinks, again, he's speaking for the Lord. Okay? Sometimes it's to... Uh, what we do is we say God laid it on my heart to add validity to what we're saying. When in reality, we don't mean God laid it on my heart. What we mean is I really, really mean this. We feel like, like because I feel convicted to say this, that that means the Holy Spirit put it in my heart and thus saith the Lord. And again, going back to what I said a second ago, the problem with that is when you're wrong, then what happens? I mean, God told me to say this. And it's wrong. It's dead wrong. God told me to tell you that if you do this, this will happen. And then they do that, and that doesn't happen. Okay, now am I saying that never happens? No. What I am saying is when we get into situations with people who are really in grief and really in mourning, okay, we have a temptation to, to want to do that because we want to add authority to what we're saying. Instead of simply saying, hey, look, you do with this what you want to. Um, if it were me, I might do this. You can do this, you can do this, you can do this. And, and any one of those is fine. And I'll help you with any of those. Um, it has to be, I really think they ought to do this, so I'm going to make the mistake of saying, God laid it on my heart to tell you this. In Job 4, uh, 12 to 21, Eliphaz reports a vision that he believes God gave him. And he says that a spirit glides across his face and asks him, who can be right in the sight of God, who even charges angels with wrongdoing? How much more can a mortal man like Job know that he's out of line with God? He says, God told me you've sinned. He is lying or mistaken, but he's wrong in either case. Okay, so there we go. That's uh, the only problem is his vision, again, is inconsistent with God's character and what we know about the why of Job's suffering. God sometimes put, puts things on our heart, but we need to remember that if we're in Christ, listen to this, if you're in Christ, God's in our heart all the time. 
So sometimes you don't have to wait for a divine revelation of something to say. It's simply walking in the presence of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis and allowing God to just going in and being salt and light with people. You don't have to have an Elijah moment before you, you offer something. Sometimes it's just the godly brother, godly sister going back and forth to each other. Number three, I would just uh, say inappropriate statements of various kinds. Uh, if you want to see what one of these looks like, go to Job 5.4. In Job 5.4, Eliphaz says this. Um, he's speaking of a, of a fool, Eliphaz is. He's speaking about fools, and he says, His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there was no one to deliver them. Now, you remember what happened to Job's kids? Okay. He's basically saying, Job, you're a fool. Now, scholars are divided on whether or not this is intentional or accidental. They're about 50-50 right down the middle on how to interpret this. If we're going to be charitable, he just said something dumb and he forgot, oh yeah, Job's kids were crushed. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Or he did it intentionally, in which case it's a pretty vicious swipe at somebody. Okay. So either way you look at it, it's just not an appropriate statement under the, under the circumstances. Now, I'm going to assume it was, a, it was an aside, not a brutal target of the misfortune of Job's kids. But that's what happens when we get talking and we're hurt and we're anxious. We say the wrong thing or we tell jokes. Like I said, I've started to coach people. Hey, look, now, I just want to let you know the brothers and sisters in Christ are going to, we're going to try to help you. And when they do, some of them are going to mean well, but they're going to say some things that are not particularly, you know, smart couple divorces and somebody shows up and talks about the breakup they had with somebody they dated for three weeks and they try to compare them you know what I mean just things they're trying to be helpful but it's not helpful and so we as Christians one of the things we can do is when we're engaged somebody in grief we can sign up for the ministry of silence which does not mean I refuse to say anything it just means that I'm not going to rush to offer quick solutions to problems the good news for us is that we don't need to be Eliphaz we can be a true blessing to those who are hurting Proverbs 12:18 says this, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Like sword thrusts, listen to that. Proverbs 16, 24, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Okay, how do we offer godly comfort to those who need it? I'm going to put it this way. Okay, God's wisdom in those situations matches the right truth to the right situation at the right time in the right spirit, okay? And humans often fail to do those things. Now, some people might disagree. They might think, hey, if it's true, it's worth saying. No, because there are some things that actually are universally true in some ways, but they're not true right then. Let me give you an example. Uh, take a cliche, like don't put off until tomorrow the things you can do today. Okay, that's good advice. Now. Let's pre pretend somebody comes to you and they go, you know what, I feel so alone that I'm considering packing up and leaving this town forever. Well, don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. <laughs> you know, sometimes I get so mad at work, I just want to strangle my boss. Don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today, right? You understand how ridiculous we sound when we apply the wrong things to the wrong situations, okay? You don't need a chainsaw to cut a tag off your sweater right? Everything cuts, right? It cuts, and you need something that cuts. So there you go. You know, somebody's just ready to go do whatever, and instead of 
taking a little bit of time. Okay, it's easy to want to say certain things to somebody, especially, this is something we don't talk about a whole lot, if they've hurt us in the past. And oh, you want to get on God's wrong side. Use that little knife twist when a person is broken and they hurt you in the past and deep down you're actually kind of glad they're going through it. That's why the parable of the unforgiving servant exists. Right? That is spiritual malpractice of the highest order. And I think one of the things that we have to be aware of as Christians is just our propensity for Satan, (laughs) Satan's propensity to work in us in such a way that it makes us his errand children on the sacred ground of people's grief and mourning. Our presence is as important as our words. I'm not going to diminish the power of words. The right word at the right time, the right spirit can be a very powerful and amazing thing for somebody. We're, but our, and our words, frankly, they matter more than we usually think. But so does our presence. My daughter, Anna here, she was, uh, she was born, a lot of people don't know this, but she was our first baby born on Christmas Eve. Great time for a preacher's kid to be born, right? Uh, middle of the night, Christmas Eve, okay? But she had some pretty significant health challenges when she was born. So she had surgery about, oh, I don't know, eight or nine days after she was, um, after she was born. So, you know, surgery opened her up. And so she was in ICU for a, a long period of time. And I just remember as a first-time parent, you're already anxious because it's your first kid. Now you're not sleeping at all. And part of hers, it was an intestinal thing, so she couldn't eat properly. So if you haven't been around a newborn who can't eat, um, you know, that's a pretty loud uh, affair. And day after day after day, and then having to have surgery where they're repairing her intestines so she can't eat again. So now you're, you're weeks into her life, and she's still not eating solid food kind of a thing, right? So it's screaming, 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 and going in and seeing, you know, your child hooked up to tubes and all that stuff. As a parent, it's absolutely anxiety producing and sad, right? Some of you have been through that. You know what that's like. Now I remember going out after I'd been in the hospital room for, I don't know, several hours, just sitting there listening to her scream. Uh, going out into the waiting room just to get a little you know, peace, kind of clear my head kind of a thing. And I go out in there and there's three or four of the elders of the church I was serving in at the time just sitting there. And they get up, they give me a hug, sit back down some lame soap opera on television. And uh, I go back in, several hours later, come back out to the waiting room, different set of guys are out there. <laughs> They'd kind of rotate it out, same thing, give me a hug, sit there, hey, you know, we're praying for you, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I can't tell you a thing they said. I don't even know if they talked, other than just, hey, we're praying for you and give me a hug. What I can tell you is their presence mattered. Because on Christmas Day, for instance, they, they could have been anywhere else, right? You got a whole stack of excuses as to why you, you shouldn't have to go to the hospital, right? But they were there. And sometimes that matters more than what you say. You see what I'm saying? You have the power to help people more than you know by just showing up. And sometimes not saying a thing other than I'm praying for you or literally just grabbing their hand and praying. Another piece of advice. 
okay, if you're going to pray with people. You don't have to go forever, okay? You don't have to use that as your chance to talk your way through their problem. You can simply say, and I, I, I often will use scripture that I've memorized, and I'll just pray through it, whether it's a psalm, it'll be something as brief as, <clears throat> you know, uh, Heavenly Father, uh, your son Jesus Christ said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. May that be found true today here in this place. Comfort them in their grief, in Jesus' name, amen, done. That one little thing, and you're praying scripture, you know it's true. Um, and they're ones that are designed for people who are grieving, right? So you're not pulling off the chainsaw to get the tag off your shirt. Uh, but don't feel like you've got you've to do all of those things. And then so um, I'm about out of time. We'll pick this up again next week. But I do want to say this to you. Every person in this room, okay, you brim with redemptive potential to help people in a world that really does uh, react to things. We live in a culture that, that does not know how to pastor people. We know how to freak out. We know how to be outraged. We know how to do all those things. We don't know how to pastor at all. Okay. To be able to actually pull up alongside a person and know how to guide them gently the way that Jesus leads us. So right now, I want us to gather around the Lord's table and remember the good shepherd. Those are going to be passing the elements. Go ahead and take your spot. And as we do, uh, let me invite you to remember the Lord Jesus Christ and how he has comforted you over the years. Uh, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, I want you to come see me as soon as this is over. I want to introduce you to him. All right? The great, the great shepherd. And as he comes to us when we've been broken, and he's not a God who doesn't feel. Lazarus dies. He weeps. He goes through Jerusalem and sees the lostness of the city. He weeps. But we grieve as not as those who have no hope, to use the words of Paul. We grieve as those who do have hope. So this morning as we gather around the table, it might be you yourself, it might be somebody you know. Let me allow you to experience the, uh, the presence of the Good Shepherd this morning and think about how he's comforted you and how he might allow that comfort to go to others through you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, with bread and cup, we give you thanks. We know, Father, that you, um, you have comforted us time and time and time again. And for that comfort, we give you thanks. May we, Lord, imitate the Good Shepherd. May we be free of the sins of Eliphaz, speaking for you when we have no business doing so. May we, Father, be quick to listen, slow to speak, it's slow to become angry, knowing that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But may we speak wisely in humility and graciously, Father, in all that we do. We pray this this morning as we gather around the table of the Good Shepherd who comforts us in our grief. Amen.